0: Good morning, all. Good to see you. So, um, before we dive in, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you do love us. We don't understand why, what's prompted that, but Lord, in your, uh, totally on your side. Uh, you created the world and the universe and you placed us in it. And uh, we see down through history that you love us and you love us consistently. You have uh, already solved the most significant issue we have, our sin issue that divides us from you. through Jesus Christ coming into the world and dying on the cross and being resurrected and conquering sin. Lord, It it, it just is beyond our understanding why. But Lord, it's the truth. And we thank you that we can worship you and sing about that truth and that relationship this morning. Lord, I pray that we would uh, uh, be hearing your word this morning, that we'd be understanding what it means for each one of us. We pray that your spirit would teach us your truths in their immensity in the completeness uh, that we might not stumble. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, the title is The Problem With Me. This is not me, me. That would take much longer than a particular Sunday morning sermon. Okay? if I can remember to do this in the right direction. Yes, no? Ah, there we are, okay. So, I, I, oftentimes I, I try to tell you a little bit about wh- why. What, Bob, what do you think about this? And, it's, and I've mentioned it's because I ponder about things. I think about some things, and there are three different things that sort of led me to the topic of this morning. Uh, The first are two books that I've been reading. I've been savoring them. There are a lot here. Uh, And so, you know, there's sometimes a book you read and you don't want it to end. Well, the first one in particular is a history that I am just enthralled with and and really appreciate. The book is called Modern Times. It's written by an English historian. Unfortunately, he is now deceased, uh, but his name uh, is Paul Johnson and uh, he writes a history from the, uh, to cover the period from 1920s to the 1990s, all right? And I'll talk a little bit more about the subject of that, but what he's trying to do, he tries to lay a framework as to what's going on in the world in terms of thinking and therefore leading to some of the bigger events that are in that period, 1920 to 1990. Secondly, there's a really, uh, oh, okay, I'm sorry. So I did actually bring them as exhibits So, modern times, okay, it's thickish, but very interesting. Uh, If you want it, I've got it up here. You can take a look at it later if you want. Um, The second book that I picked up recently, because the title intrigued me, The Weirdest People in the World. I thought I fit into that category, so, you know, might as well try it and see what it says, you know? The subtitle is how the West became psychologically peculiar and particularly prosperous. All right? So again, it kind of enthralled me, kind of interesting. And he brings to bear some interesting points that are part of this morning. Uh, so, uh, lastly is this uh, study we've actually been doing on Sunday mornings. Uh, and again, this is a pitch for the Sunday morning small group meeting at nine fifteen in the morning each week, and we have been uh, we we've been in Genesis and we've been looking at uh, key characters, ones that I think we've talked about probably hundreds of times if you've been in the church or grown up in the church and Sunday school and all the rest. And even if you haven't, you know we've 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 talked about uh, the book of Genesis, the first gen- the book of the Bible. We've talked about Adam and Eve and uh, uh, Noah, Abraham, and uh, so far. And learning all kinds of stuff that again I thought I knew. I thought I knew about these, I I, you know, I I thought I I don't need to go study them anymore. And as as Dale said again this morning, is I'm learning so much more, all right? So that all of those come into the discussion. Yes, there we go, all right. So now let's get into a little bit of the detail. Early on in Paul Johnson's book, Modern Times, he kind of lays out three major themes that he then gives detail to as he moves along. The first is, That uh, from uh, this period we're still living in now, this has not been changed, even though his book only goes to 1990, this still is true. We live in a relativistic world. The culture okay, is relativistic, and it means that the belief began to circulate that there are no longer any absolutes of time and space, of good and evil, of knowledge, and above all, value. Our culture today says it has rejected uh, the, the understanding of God through God's word, and it has begun to say, "Well, you can't tell me what's right or wrong. You can't tell me what's right or wrong in my life. It is up to me to decide. There are no standards. And so it's situational. It might be, I'm in love now, but then maybe I'm not in love later, and you can't tell me that that's right or wrong. It's relativistic. Also, he talks very much about what he calls pretty much, and flat out, blatantly, three failed systems of thought or philosophies of Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche. Okay, And he, uh, very interestingly, discounts all of them And he says, uh, quote from the book also, he says this, among the advanced races, meaning the the West in particular, the decline and collapse of the religious impulse would leave a huge vacuum. And then he goes on to talk about that vacuum, okay? Because next he unfolds in in this uh, uh, history and he tells it as a, you know, just a story that flows along. He then talks about despotic utopias, okay, he says, uh, and he, again, plenty of evidence of this rise of the dictatorial states where one party rule is all that matters. And the quote in this case would be the will to power would produce a new kind of messiah, uninhibited by any religious sanctions, whatever, and with an unappeasable appetite for controlling mankind. Now, who's he talking about? Hitler in Germany. Right, Mobilizing an entire country to then bring about unimaginable, unimaginable conflict throughout Europe and Asia. Killing millions of people, including the, the Holocaust of the Jews, alone six million people. He talks about uh, Lenin and Stalin. And the rise of communism in in, uh, the Soviet Union, again, killing millions of people, millions of their own people, in this desire to establish a state that is ruled by the party. And human life no longer matters but the party and what the party's will is. And he goes on and on and on and gives more examples of that. Heinrich's book is a little different. Weird stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And this is where he tries to say, well, what's so special about Western culture that has made it uh, so uh, dominant in history? Since, you know, maybe around the 1400s to today. Lots of stuff here, but let me just read the quote off to the side. Self-focused, individualistic, non-conforming, patient-trusting, analytic, and intention-obsessed capture just a small sampling of the ways in which weird people are psychologically unusual when seen in a global and historical perspective. I highlighted a few of those words. Self-focused, individualistic, non-conforming. Throw away out all the rules and do what you think needs to be done. Intent analytic. Again, show me. I can't believe in a God anymore because I can't see him. Show me what's you know, all that's real is is materialism in this this world, that the, the things that we can touch and see, that's all that matters and intentions-obsessed, meaning my goal is this, and I do not care who gets hurt. So this is the downside of this weird group of people. I stumbled on a, uh, an article quite a while ago, it had to have been late last year, And I think this gives a pretty interesting synopsis of how we see or or can see things in our current culture. And I'll read this out because the print might be a little small. There is a truth. truth That truth must be pursued. The only substitute for truth is falsehood. Human beings have sussed out eternal truths over the course of millennia. And to discard those truths in favor of subjectivism is crippling. He's saying, hey, this is, you know, what our world says. Everything's subjective. Nothing's real. And he says that we're throwing away what the, the ancients knew from the very beginning. They, they saw creation and they knew there had to be a God. Those eternal truths are rooted in the belief that God made us in his image, that he granted us roles and responsibilities, and that true freedom lies in making choices within the boundary of those roles and responsibilities. We're going to talk about that a lot more. What happens when we discard those truths? Disaster strikes. Disaster. Some of what Paul Johnson talks about in his book, and he lays it all out. Millions upon millions of people suffering and dying. And he go, this person goes on. He says, first we lose belief in something higher, then we lose belief in ourselves. We are seeing the consequences of this two-step process before us in real time. In a recent interview with the Wall Street Journal, social psychologist Jonathan Haidt spelled out what happens when we turn our gaze inward rather than outward. Generation Z, he said, has been sucked into a vortex of narcissism and jealousy and isolation. I checked that article, Wall Street Journal, 30th of last year of the 30th of December of last year. According to Hype, there has never been a generation this depressed, anxious, and fragile. And I had to look up narcissism. I thought I knew the word, but I put the definition off to the side. I was a bit surprised by this. Narcissism is described as a personality disorder characterized by self-preoccupation need for admiration, lack of empathy as a result, and unconscious deficits in self-esteem. That seems contrary, right? Being narcissistic, sort of focusing on yourself, but in the end result of that is feeling like you're nothing. This is the way that definition tells me it works. All right. So now, Bob, where are you going with this? Whoops. One advanced, and I didn't advance the other. Okay, sorry about that. All right. Got a little diagram off to the right-hand side here in this one, and this is my attempt at describing what I think are some of the elements going on with regard to individualism in our culture today. Now, individualism, I rank, I rate highly. We like to think of the rugged individualist particularly in the United States, and we've got freedom to do things, and, to, and, and that has been one of the tremendous uh, things that has, has been uh, uh, driving American culture over the years, from the founding of the, the original colonies to the just the tremendous growth and, growth and success of our culture. But now there are creeping some, some elements that are getting really warped. And that's what I wanted to lay out here. This isn't necessarily a cycle. You notice i got no arrows here. I'm not saying this is a cycle, but they're all elements. The problem starts at the very top. The center of the world is me. That's the only concern I have for my life. It's me. Coming down around the clockwise direction, Therefore I'm free to do what I want. Freedom, what's it mean to me? It means I get to do. I get to I'm the only one who decides what I do and there are no boundaries. Our culture says just do it. Right? Be what you can be. Nothing's nothing's too much. Just go out and get it. There's never any sense there of boundaries to any of that. It's just go out and do it. Whatever feels like, whatever you want, go do it. Now, Paul tells us there's a reality here. In Romans, he talks about it and he says, hey, we think we're free to do whatever we want. And in God's eyes, that oftentimes is sin. And Paul says, you will become slaves to sin. You are not free. You think you are, but you're not. Coming down further on the right hand side, from your perspective, right? This side. Focus for many people in our culture, day to day, here in the United States and the Western culture, and I won't say that just exclusively, but the focus is on play, purpose possessions, and lastly, power. How much time do people today look for diversions? We have a bucket list. We're, spo- we're encouraged to have a bucket list. What are the things that I need to go after so that I can enjoy myself in my life? How much do we time do we spend with people playing computer games, for instance? And, and, and spending their time enjoying themselves or binge-watching Netflix or any of the other streaming services. It's, I just want to be entertained. TikTok, what are they, 15-minute videos, 20-second videos? I mean, 15-second videos, 20-minute videos. It's just constant entertainment. I just want something that I can click through and just be entertained all the time. Purpose. We'll have to come back to this but you know what's my purpose well i I want to I want to get ahead in life and I want to have uh, you know what I want to have and and that's what's going to direct me and I'm going to be able to sort of let everything else slide all that matters is my purpose and and plans my the seeking after possessions okay we've got a very materialistic culture and you know it's it's uh, you know what's the saying uh, you know whoever dies with the most toys wins you know it's it's this. You know, I'm just going to seek after things, and that's all that matters, except power. Power plays into this. You know, I want to be seen, I want to be able to make things happen. Now, I want to stop. I forgot something I did want to say about freedom. Freedom in this particular point about focus, we have people making odd decisions nowadays. And here's what I'll give you an example of. A lot of young people are foregoing relationships with other people, foregoing a relationship of seeking out a a partner, somebody they can marry and commit to, and instead they're saying, no, 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 I, I can't do that. It's too much at risk. I, I can't risk putting myself in that position. I don't want to put myself in that position. And therefore, they are not committing. You get a lot of young people today in the 18 to 35 range who are, who are, who are not engaging in, with that, that view of life. And they're saying, I'm not going to get married. And so we see all kinds of things that play out. This is why people say, well, let's, let's live together sort of a trial basis and we'll just kind of check it out. But I'm never really going to step over that line and commit because I've still got to hold on to me and what I want. They're likewise saying, I don't want to have children in this environment. I, you know, I, I, I don't want to give up to raise children. I, I've got my life to live. They might go as far as what? The term is fur babies? The, the, I'll have fur babies and, you know, there's something that I can be entertained with and cuddle, but they don't really, really take that much effort, right? Uh, and, and by the way, I, we have a lovely young dog right now. She is just, I will talk about hours about Daisy. okay? So I, I, I know what it's like to have pets, and right now we have an excellent young dog. But, my life isn't to raise fur babies it's not what I'm here for so people are missing out with these things that I've talked about so far because they're making decisions that are odd in terms of human history right down at the bottom of the chart we have a a, a lot of people saying well I'm owed things. Not that I'm to give, but I'm owed. Culture, civilization, people owe me. And more than that, the world must accommodate my rights. The world needs to change for me. See how Amazing, arrogant that that is. And in what ways do we see that? You can't say anything that's offensive to me. You need to change your terminology. You need to change your pronouns when you talk to me. The world must change because of who I am. rights in our world today don't mean the rights as they are, at least again here in America, not what's laid out in the Constitution or the the Bill of Rights, the first set of amendments to the Constitution. What's the Constitution tell us our rights are? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, all right? (laughs) They're fundamental. And then the Bill of Rights goes on and gives detail to that. First Amendment, free speech. For instance, Rights become, in this world right now, this society, this group of people who are so focused on themselves, rights become, I am owed. I am owed health care. That's my right. I'm owed food. Because I, we all know we have to have food, but there's a right to food. There's rights all over the place, but these rights are or or, or, or rights defined as an obligation that other people have to provide to me? There is no right of health care unless somebody else sort of picks up the slack, right? If I can't afford it myself and it's a right, that means society has to give it to me. It has to respect me. So that's my right. I'm, I have a right to be expected, respected. And then there's this thought of victimhood. I, I've got a little chart on this one later. Let me keep going. I'm sorry I'm getting too slow here. Seeking meaning in causes and new uh, tribalism. So as we go along, people are realizing they're a bit disconnected and there's no re- great plan going on here, and so they've adopted causes. All right? Any number of causes. Let's think about PETA, uh, for, instance. Uh, uh, for instance, or... Um, uh, a healthy lifestyle. Um, What else could be in this category? We could certainly put in uh, climate change. We could certainly put in uh, all kinds of causes. And so they give meaning to me because I've aligned myself to this big, big cause. But then that begins to translate into tribalism. I have a cause. You don't believe me now we are enemies, right? You don't have a right to talk. You don't have a right to live in some cases because you think differently than me. Politics have definitely gotten this way, right? And then it goes on. A lot of people in this situation who have begun to kind of cut themselves off and look for things from the world and they're not satisfied even with these causes, they get to the point and say, What's the meaning of life? All his vanity comes from Ecclesiastes, and the, the counselor writing that he, 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 he lays it all out. He says, way back in time, people figured out that chasing after all these things, knowledge and possessions, and it, it leads to nothing. In John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress, faith. Uh, uh, A Christian goes to a great town known as Vanity Fair, where everything's available. But the pursuit of all them is described as vanity, nothingness. And so we get to the top left. In our society today, people in their focus about themselves end up alone, anxious, fearful, the article i just put up a little while ago attack and there is l- lacking they are lacking attachment to anything other than themselves this is described to us in a couple of different ways before i leave this one genesis 6 in the story of noah what tells us about noah introduced the story of noah it says this the wickedness of man was great, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In Genesis, this is the state of the culture back then. Nobody was looking at God anymore. Nobody was paying attention to him anymore. Everybody was only looking at what they wanted the intention of the thoughts of the heart. And in Romans, Paul talks about it this way. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him or as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their few, foolish hearts were darkened. That is the description today of what Paul was writing about back early in the first century. Victimhood. I, I, came across, I, I Again, I want to look this up. Well, what, what does victimhood really mean? I think I've seen it, but what is it? Oh, sorry. I didn't advance this one again. All right. Some people, this is an article in Scientific American, unrivaling, unrivaling the mindset of victimhood. Some people tend to see themselves as perpetual victims. Rahav Gabay and her colleagues define this tendency for interpersonal victimhood as the ongoing feeling that the self is a victim, which is generalized across many relationships. As a result, victimization becomes a central part of a person's identity. Those who have a perpetual, perpetual victimhood mindset tend to have an ex. Locus of control. They believe that one's life is entirely under the control of forces outside oneself, such as fate, luck, or the mercy of others. You've seen people who take this on, right? Nothing ever works for me. Nothing is ever right. Nothing works out in my life. And therefore, I'm absolved of all responsibility for my life. Based on clinical observations and research, the researchers found that the tendency for interpersonal victimhood consists of four main dimensions, constantly seeking recognition for one's victimhood. <laughs> this is how I can sort of raise my, my, my stature in the world. Nothing's going right, but I want to constantly talk about I'm a victim. I'm a victim. I'm a victim. Moral elitism is part of that. That's an interesting one. Lack of empathy and for the pain and suffering of others. Why? Because they're only concentrating on themselves and how bad their life is and frequently ruminating about past victimization. All right, I'm gonna go on. Now, in light of all of that, how do, we f- how do we get a proper understanding of individual, of the individual and what I'm supposed to be in this world? And so the me here is all of us. You look at your me here, okay? Genesis reminds us of a couple of truths. God is the prime mover of everything. Genesis 1-3, it says, God said. God said, and that resulted in creation. God spoke a word or words, and it all comes into being. Paul Johnson, in another History I'm reading of his, a, Jew, a history of the Jewish people. Uh, he is a secular historian and he says, no, this is fundamental. This is different. But a lot of people say, well, Genesis just tells us about the creation. The story of creation in the Bible is just like all these other creation myths in, from other cultures. And the answer is no, Paul Johnson says, that's not true. Oftentimes, in those other myths, in pagan cultures, for instance, that have those myths, they talk about God as being one of many gods, struggling. And out of that struggle became earth. God is not described in Genesis of one, as one of many. It's God, singular. Nor did he struggle to create. He spoke it into being. As creator, he owns all, including us. Mm. This is fundamental for a proper understanding of me. I didn't create me. God created the way to to bring me into this world, and, and, and he's given me a soul, but I didn't do it. I can't pat myself on the back nor do I create anything in this world. But creation story tells us we are not alone in this universe nor are we to live alone. Genesis 1:27, 2:7 through 9, 18 to 24. God created Adam in his image. And then it goes on and says, "Well, you know, uh, uh, God, uh, God decided that he looks at Adam and says, "Well, that's great, that's wonderful. We have a relationship, but, but Adam shouldn't be alone, so he creates Eve. That's relationship. Fundamental. From the very beginning of time, relationship between man and God and between male and female. Fundamental. That's reality. God creates the way in which he intends to create more human beings, and he creates the nuclear family. That's reality. You've got to start there. So when people began to say, well, I don't want to get married, they're kind of ignoring Genesis chapter 1. This was God's plan. What we have only comes through his action and grace, relationship and worth uh, relationship and worth flow from him instead of me seeking my my worth in this world and in in the eyes of other people who i am stems from god's creation of me and wanting to have relationship with me not because i'm good but because he is his active plan centers on our redemption we see from the beginning of time he knew what our problem was going to be because mankind did uh, back to that, uh, you know, that seeking freedom, Adam and Eve, you know, they have been warned about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they said, well, gee, you know what? God really didn't mean I can't have that. I, I, I really want to eat from that tree. Doubting God in his character, in his wisdom, And so God has had to put in place a plan to redeem us, leading to Jesus's coming into this world. We are, however, not to be just passive recipients in this world, because God in his grace gives so much to us, but we are to be active in his domain. John 14.12 talks about that. that uh, John 14.12 tells us that Jesus is talking, and he says, "You you the disciples will will do greater works than I have than I have in this world while I've been here." All right, if you have a Bible or your cell phone, you can or can decide you don't want to, but um, I want to turn to Psalm 23, well known psalm. David writes, David's experienced a lot about God's hand in his life. God chooses him, the youngest of the brothers in his family, and he anoints him king to follow after Saul. Years elapsed before Saul is finally killed by the Philistines, and Saul, I mean, David uh, takes over the kingship of the Israelites. In all of that time, David learned to live in God's hands, regardless of circumstance. We see it early on with his young boy with the whole scene with David and Goliath, and David says, Well, look, it's not me just going up there against this huge Philistine. Okay? But it's God who's going to win this battle. And so this he writes later. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Green pastures. I'm a sheep. Everything's there that I need. Quiet water. Not flood waters. Not raging streams, but waters that I can go up and get a drink. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He does it all for his glory. And then he goes on in verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. When you think that you are alone, you are forgetting this passage. David says... When I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, he was threatened. He was constantly on the run as Saul was trying to kill him for all those years. And he is able to look back at and say, even though when I was in that uh, place where I was in danger, and it still continued, there were conflicts after he became king. I will fear no evil for you are with me. You, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I know I can rest in who you are and in your power. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He's talking about his future now. You anoint me, my head, with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. God, you will be with me all the time of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is what David's able to say. Matthew Henry, in the slide I have up here, his commentary he concludes a couple of things, three points. From God's being his shepherd, he, meaning David, infers that he shall not want anything that is good for him. God will always provide. Second point is from his performing the office of a good shepherd to him, he infers, again David, that he, David, need not fear any evil in the greatest dangers and difficulties he could be in. And lastly, from the good gifts of God's bounty to whom he now infers the constancy and perpetuity of his mercy. We see this again in the John 14 passage. John 14 to 17, if you recall, is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with the disciples, and this is just before his arrest. And Jesus is talking to the disciples, and and sort of uh, he's encouraging them. He's telling them what's going to happen. And in John 14, 16, It tells us that Jesus promises that when he leaves, something will happen. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. So Jesus says, I'm leaving. I've been with you. But when I leave, I'm asking the Father to send the Holy Spirit, and he will be with you forever. Matthew Henry says, this is the great New Testament promise. Not Jesus is coming. I thought that was interesting. He says, no, 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 no. He says, "This we knew from from way back in Genesis that God was going to provide a Savior, a Messiah, but in the New Testament, we learn about the Holy Spirit. A promise adapted to the present distress of the disciples, he says. Acts 1-4 tells Jesus, talking to his disciples, he says, you guys stay here in Jerusalem, and you wait until the Holy Spirit comes. The word describing the Holy Spirit is paraclete. It's a legal term, it's, no, it's, in, it's, it's a Greek word for the advocate, on our behalf, okay? We have a Holy Spirit, an advocate. And the way we see it work out, Matthew Henry says, the church and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The Holy Spirit, the comforter, comforted the early church. And in, in the difficult circumstances they were in, they still grew because they had the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, he says, Christ comforted his disciples when he was with them. And now that he was leaving them in their greatest need, he promises them another. So, sort of foundational truths for me. When I say me, again, each of us to consider when we look at who we are. Come on. Should have changed that. Okay. I am not the center of the universe. Back to my chart I showed you earlier. God owns all of creation. He owns me and all that he has given me. His intentions for me unlike Satan whispering in the ears of Eve in the Garden of Eden, where he says, well, did God really say that? Is God withholding something from you? All of that needs to be put aside. God's intentions for me are all good, underpinned by his perfect character. He leads, encourages, and comforts. This is a God who created the universe. Speaking of that, I just wanted to mention this. Recently... Uh, I was with a friend. We were out on a clear night uh, where we could see, without light pollution, we could see the stars. Living around here, really tough to do, right? We were looking south, and we could see the Milky Way. And it was glorious to think of the universe and its immensity and in that, God created us, is what I'm thinking. And my friend says to me, boy, doesn't it make you feel insignificant? Because he didn't have faith. He didn't look at it and say, look at what God has created, and, and wonder about why. You, you can ask him why all you want, right? But why God chose to do it, but we live in that immensity God cares for us. My own, on my own, living my life, which is what everybody wants to say, right? I'm living my life. You do you is the other phrase, right? Hey, I'm living my life. And what it will lead to is great fear, mistakes, guilt, troubles, and emptiness. God desires that I know him personally and that I rest in his hands like David learned to do with the great Shepherd. My purpose in life is to do his will. I'm not free to do what I want. I shouldn't be taking that view that all that matters is what I want to do or what I want to have or how I want to occupy my time. My purpose in life is to do his will. That that will uh, will most often be served, sorry, the is shouldn't be there, through my relationship to others. Ooh, I don't like that. I like being by myself, or I think I do. I must turn upside down my hold on time, my time, as I'd say it, right? You're, that's an, that person's an interrup- They're an interruption to me. They're, 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 they're taking my time, and I, I want to do something else. I've got to learn to turn that all upside down. My time, my focus, and my intentions in life need to be flipped entirely. In Matthew 6.33, a reminder. What does it say? Seek the first, the kingdom of God. Luke 22 and 24 to 27 is the disciples, and they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, hey, I'm serving you guys. That's what you need to be thinking about, not who's going to be... Here, Jesus says, ha, 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 I'm God, and my Father has sent me here to, to, to die on the cross. I'm serving you. And you guys are worried about who's going to be on top of the heap? So here's the truth of my diagram. I, I felt, felt I should give you the, what it should look like. Starts at the top. Not me. God is the center of all. I am his creation, not an accident of chance. Nothing, going down the right again, nothing is my own, not my plans, my possessions, not my interests. My place in this world is to meet the needs of others. You want to know what you're here for? It's a relationship. It's not being you all by yourself, seeking what you want to do. We see that particularly in the church. God, in his plan, says, no, no, I don't want you guys to be alone. And he sends the comforter to the church as as it describes in Acts. And God's intention is that we are not alone in this world. We are what? Brothers and sisters in faith. So top left. We are never alone. We are to be resting in all of your relationships, including that with God, of course, and the knowledge of why you were here. Last spring, in our small group, we spent a couple of weeks uh, uh, on uh, the task was to look at a set of passages known as the One another passages in the New Testament. You can do any search, uh, you look for one another, and you will come up with a listing of about 100 verses in the New Testament. Jesus' statements, Paul's statements, Peter, John, James, throughout the New Testament, these passages occur. I Oh, I'm sorry. I'm way behind up here. I'm sorry about that, guys. Somebody should have thrown something at me. I'll give you a couple of examples leave this to you this is your homework not all in one day or whatever but there's a list of positive commands and here's some of the examples of them midway down love one another john 3 13. that command occurs at least 16 times be devoted to one another romans 12. honor one another above yourselves romans 12 10. live in harmony with one another romans 12 16. build up one another romans 14 and first colossians 3 16 greet one another, care for one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, be patient with one another, speak the truth in love, be kind and compassionate to one another. And they go on and they go on and they go on. All of them in the imperative voice commands, do this! And there are negative commands, okay? How not to treat one another. Do not lie to one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, you'll be destroyed by each other. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Do not slander one another. Do not grumble against each other. We can do all of this because we're in a real sense members of one another, Romans 12 and Ephesians. Give it a chance. Take a look at it. So what must change? I've taken too long. I apologize. Go back up. We need to start practicing about who we are to be in this world and to throw out this idea that all that matters is me. We must first focus on our relationship to God. Realize what God wanted this from the very beginning of time. He wanted to know each one of you. That's earth shattering. It flips everything that the current culture says about individuals. Secondly, we must be diligent in our relationship to others. First, with your family. Wife. Wife husband, mother, father, brothers, sisters, grandparents, the list goes on. We first start by being reminded that our relationships with others is significant and most significant in our lives. Put aside the the games, put aside the the things I want to achieve in life and the, the distractions I want to go chase and follow. Come back to what matters. And as I was just talking about, know that your church family needs you and you must build and nurture those connections. This throws upside down that view of individualism, the focus on me. The last thing I'd like to do is just close by taking you to a A passage uh well it's actually a prayer. I can say it's a passage. Um, I think I might actually have used it. Uh-uh. Uh uh The Valley of Vision, Book of Puritan Prayers. One of the prayers, the writer says this. We know it is thy power alone that can recall wandering children, can impress upon them a sense of divine things, and can render that sense lasting and effectual. Make me an almoner. An almoner is an old type word, but it's a dispenser of charity. Okay. Make me an almoner to give thy bounties to the indigent, Comfort to the mentally ill, restoration to the sin diseased, hope to the despairing, joy to the sorrowing, love to the prodigals, those who are distant from God. Blow away the ashes of unbelief by thy spirit's breath, and give me light and fire and warmth of love. Fill the garden of my soul with the wind of love, that the sense of Christian life may be wafted to others." And here's the key phrase in my mind. Then come and gather the fruits to thy glory that I fulfill the great end of my being to glorify thee and be a blessing to men. This is the antidote. This is where we need to be. We need to be with this kind of an attitude that this pilgrim writer had. Okay, let's close. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word gives us such truth and fundamental truth. We need to hear it. We need to hear your call about who we are and what we're to be. Lord, I pray that you would help us by your spirit. Change us where we need to change. Help us uh, go way beyond those existential fears of why I'm here and the the fears that we're alone in this world. That's not the truth. You are here. You have a purpose for each one of us in this world, in this life. You call us to yourself that we may live with you for eternity. But while we're here, Lord, you give us a task. Lord, I pray that we would take that up That cause, that cause is your cause, not one we create. And Lord, I pray that we would be people who would call others with this same good news. That likewise, they can throw away their fears and their anxieties. They can come to know you and they can come to know your plan for them. Lord, that is your good news. Pray that we would be bearers of that. In Jesus' name, amen.